Hello, you're listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod, sponsored by Betfair. With seven weeks to go in the EFL season, every single result gets more and more significant. This is a recap of the EFL weekend in which... In the championship, we saw a New York downpour uproar. Cov, Rock, Blackpool, Borough as thorough as ever. And does the Warlock, Warnock, have one last spell? As Huddersfield ward off Millwall. In League One, someone finally put the L in LNER. MK, sky high, thanks to Kai Kai, out of the relegation zone. And how much wood could a Fleetwood wood, if a Fleetwood could Fleetwood? Derby found out the hard way. In League Two, Crawley creep out the bottom two. There was something for all in Rochdale. Charlie Austin muscling in a quad. Two cooks provided, if anything, a delicious broth at Valley Parade and melon chopped at Tranmere. Welcome to the NTT20 podcast, sponsored by Betfair. All right, George. They're very good, mate. I feel like I was getting a bit um, complacent as to the the sublime nature of your poetry. And I decided for that one, I was going to really sit and listen and not let my cynical ways get in the way of what was just beautiful prose and very clever. And given that I personally feel pretty pushed for time on Monday mornings, it is a testament to your professionalism and your love for the EFL that you're able to conjure up such wisdom. Wow. Okay, that's thrown me a bit. It's actually (laughs) such kindness being shown so openly. I feel like that's the sort of Mm. thing that humans... Dare I say it, often British humans don't do enough. But it made me feel amazing when you said that. Good. Hopefully that makes you feel good. Maybe the listener, if, if you like that moment, just pick up your phone. Just text one of your best mates being like, you are really good at something that they're good at. And just do something nice for them. George, one of the things I really love about you is what we've built together. Not the top 20 uh, over the last almost seven years now, which is actually quite scary. And we're we're continuing to build a big announcement. Not the top 20 is getting textual. Oh, yes. Continuing with the Mesca and Pod line that we're going down in 2023. Formerly just a podcast, now a YouTube channel as well. And now a substack to the EFL newsletter by NTT20. And we'll be delivering EFL analysis, research and insight directly to your inbox. Isn't that incredible? I have already subscribed. Look. We love the EFL. Pretty good chance if you're listening to this, you love the EFL. We like to think we've had you covered with audio content with the podcast, almost seven years worth. We like to think we got you covered now with some video content on the YouTube channel, two or three, sometimes four videos a week on there at the moment. But what about those moments where you're at your desk? Maybe you're pretending to work. Maybe you're just trying to avoid doing some work. What about when you're sitting on the toilet? What about when you've lost your headphones? These are the moments where the Substack is going to come up, Trumps. You can sign up for free at ntt20.substack.com. We think that it's quite difficult and quite time-consuming to get a really good overview of all things EFL. Of course, you can listen to the pod once, twice a week, and that might help. But in terms of written content, yeah, you can go on major news sites that cover the EFL. You can read a lot of template match reports with not generally much opinion or depth necessarily you can spend hours on twitter just hoping that you catch all the biggest news hoping that the best clips or the best viral tweets will find their way into your overstimulated eyeballs but we thought what if you could get notes on every match with links directly to the highlights and curated social media content to read at your leisure on a monday on any day 
what if you could leave a question on any EFL topic, serious or frivolous, and have it answered by ourselves in a mailbag just a few days later? What if you could get your pulse racing for the EFL weekend with a weekend preview, a little bonus podcast extra, whizzing through the weekend slate and picking out key storylines? What if, eh? Ali, you have just described the EFL newsletter by NTT20. Oh my God, you're absolutely (laughs) right. Look, the content will go live starting next week, the Monday 27th of March, and the newsletter is free to subscribe to, and some of this content will always be free. But in the future, delivering the whole package will only be possible through paid subscribers. So ahead of the 2023-24 season, we'll be adding a paid subscription option. So no need to decide now. The newsletter will be free for the next three months or so, so you can check out what it's all about. If you would like to show early support for the EFL newsletter by NTT20, support George and myself. You can pledge to become a paid subscriber upon signing up, and it'll kick in when we launch the paid service. So you won't pay anything until we launch the paid service before the start of next season. The EFL newsletter by NTT20. Sign up for free now at ntt20.substack.com or click in the link in the description if you don't want to type a thing. Link's in the description, ntt20.substack.com. It's a big, big new thing for us. We've put a lot of work into it with the help of the magnificent Sam who is helping to run things with us. Please join today. We promise it will be worth it. George, in the championship, it was a a two-game week. There was a full slate in midweek. Uh, And normally, I like to start with those teams that won back-to-back since we last spoke on the Monday pod. But not a single one of the 24 championship teams won two games since we last spoke. It must be the pressure of the run-in. Or maybe the fact that Burnley and Sheffield United, the top two, both won in midweek and then didn't play in the league this weekend due to FA Cup quarters. Two teams did lose both games, QPR and Bristol City. On to them shortly, George. But let's start with the third place team, Middlesbrough. They beat Preston 4-0. I'm starting to wonder if these Borough games, if these wins are actually taking place. Like, are they definitely (laughs) happening or are they just copy and paste at this point? It does feel that way, although I I would give Borough more credit in this one because even though Borough's form has been so impressive in the last few weeks and months, their games have had a chaotic angle to them. As the agents of the chaos, I think they have been generally the ones who've come out on top, but their games have been end-to-end, frenetic, high scoring, um, with them normally coming out, the the team who have scored more often. But there was much more control, I thought, about this, where... They were still irresistible going forward. The interplay between um, between Akpom and Archer and McGree on the left-hand side was brilliant. It was interesting that on the highlight show, Michael Carrick did an interview with Hugh Wiesencroft. Um, and I love that he referred to how good Archer was in his partnerships and said in his partnerships with, with McGree off the left, in his partnerships with Akpom through the middle. And that just goes to show that we think in our head of, of partnerships as being, you know, the midfield two or the, the front two or the defensive duo. It doesn't have to be the case. As Archer is the man leading the line, as he's given pretty much free license to drop him when he wants to around the channels, why not have a, a, a basically a relationship with a certain player and individual um, where you wouldn't necessarily associate the two? I like that way of thinking from Carrick and you know, Archer with two brilliant goals against the side where he spent that loan spell last season. Um, just about managing to, um, uh, yeah, to, to do the muted celebration despite his obvious glee at, at the importance of the goals and, and, and the two great strikes that they were. Atpom scoring the first, and then uh, four scoring very late on. Preston offered very little in 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 reply, unsurprisingly. So yeah, I mean, I've 
cast some doubt over whether or not Barra have the staying power to, to maintain this through until until May. Um, they still scored four goals from an expected goals of kind of 1.5, but they are scoring goals so consistently that that shouldn't really be a massive issue given they are creating so many chances in games and they took the lead early here. But more defensive displays like this where they're able just to avoid the issue entirely by being so dominant on the ball and creating chances and territorially. Um, this this felt to me like an, you know another step forward for a side that have already d- done so much in, in such a short space of time. Mm. I mean, that first goal... Those are goals you're not meant to score against a team who play 3-5-2, right? You get three centre-backs, you've got three central midfielders. The whole idea, out of possession at least, is that you are congesting the central areas and you are daring teams to go down the sides uh, and all being well, you'll be able to handle the threat from the flanks. That goal was basically two versus six. Akpom and Archer against six players in white and they just slice through the middle with a little give and go a little one two four perfect touches and a great finish as well I basically think that unless you are Sheffield United unless you are a fan of a team that has had a run-in with Borough or perhaps with Steve Gibson in the past and of course there are a handful of those teams across the three leagues if that doesn't apply to you I don't think you can be watching this Middlesbrough team and not basically fall in love with them in EFL terms, in championship terms, we haven't seen that many teams who attack quite like this. The exciting thing is that Burnley are absolutely brilliant to watch as well, scoring tons and tons of goals as well, visually, aesthetically beautiful in in a slightly different way. So I feel like we are being treated somewhat on that front. I also appreciate the way that Sheffield United attack. Times recently, it feels like they've been getting a little bit clogged up and teams are finding it a little bit easier to defend against them. But just as a top three and the way that they look to play and the way that they look to attack, they're all individual enough, I think, for it to be pretty interesting pretty exciting so happy days there Hayden Hackney getting more love as well for his control in midfield what an incredible emergence from Hackney George when we picked him for 21 under 21 in January you know he'd probably played 14 games since breaking into the team uh, in October after Wilder was sacked and I guess in the I, I didn't I wasn't really concerned about this but if I was looking for a worry selecting Hackney it would be that his emergence and the amount of games that he's played was just down to a change in manager and that maybe with a January transfer window looming, Borough would look to get someone more established in there. They did sign Dan Barlasser, but he hasn't yet dislodged Hackney. And I guess that just goes to show how how unerringly good he has been um, in, in what is yeah his first half season, now three quarters of a season at this level. It's been absolutely brilliant. It's quite annoying how, you know, if, if you were to do your 21 under 21 list now, if one were to, not you and I, then Hackney would be a very obvious selection. So it doesn't it doesn't look that clever from us back in January because it was only two months ago. But at the time, you know, it did feel like it was us sticking our necks out a little bit. And he's... Cause, and it's also not a very common pathway to, to you know, first team football is having a, a pretty poor loan at a League Two side, which is an indication of, of where Hackney was perceived to be in his development a year ago a side who ended up getting relegated out of the Football League and him making very, in, in Scunthorpe, for those who don't know, and him making kind of little impact. So for you know, whether that is a really bad bit of talent ID from Chris Wilder and Alan Neil, um or Neil Warnock before that, or whether it's just a, an unbelievable bit of coaching, um, it, it it's not often you see somebody who, uh, you know, stepping up to the level that he has. And, and it's, you know, it's incredible to see. And I'm sure that, playing in a team like the one that Carrick has built and therefore maybe not having 
some off the ball issues exposed too much has been a big positive too. So what does that mean for the automatic promotion race? Well, Burnley and Sheffield United didn't play. Uh, Sheffield United won in midweek and Borough drew with Stoke. So by Thursday morning, the gap between second and third was six points. Now it's back to three, albeit Sheffield United have, again, a game in hand now. I don't know if you're keeping up with this. I am struggling to, but I'm enjoying the ride, that's for sure. Um, Sheffield United are heading to Wembley. They beat Blackburn 3-2 in the FA Cup quarterfinal, an all-championship of fair I mean it was a brilliant cup tie it it felt a little bit like the neutral deserved an extra half an hour uh, of extra time it didn't get it but it was for great reason because Tommy Doyle's 25 yard screamer into the top corner which pairs got a hand to but couldn't keep out was basically the perfect way to win what was an absolutely brilliant cup tie uh, a bonkers game of pendulum football I would call that uh, where at differing times it felt like both teams were definitely going to win it felt like both teams had definitely you know completely dropped off and had lost their performance levels it really did swing back and forth absolutely loved it the, the Tommy Doyle story is lovely I'm sure many will know already but if you don't both of his grandfathers played in the 1969 FA Cup final for Manchester City how cool is that so they were teammates George and uh, one of the sons married the other's daughter that's basically the dream. Could happen with me and you, couldn't it? Oh, my God. You've got to get wriggle on, though. <laughs> Imagine that. That'd be absolutely unbelievable. Isn't it really sad? Because it was so great that Doyle scored that goal. And with the story about, about the FA Cup, and then they've obviously drawn City in the semis. Mm. But neither can play. Neither McAtee or, or Doyle can play against them. It just seems incredibly harsh. I think it, it's, it, it's supposedly an FA issue here where it wouldn't surprise me at all if, for their development... Pep Guardiola and the, and the you know the off the non-playing staff at City would probably quite want James McAtee and um, and uh, Tommy Doyle to play in an FA Cup semi-final at, at Wembley, um, but they can't. And for Doyle to score the goal that gets them there, and then due to the luck of the draw, literally the luck of the draw, not be able to partake in the in the semi just seems seems pretty cruel. It was a cracking game. I'm sort of chuckling at the fact that when we did a big match preview about Sheffield United Blackburn in the league the other day, we both sort of wondered aloud whether if a genie could give them a guaranteed win either in the league game against each other or in the cup game, which would they choose? And the majority of Sheffield United fans wanted the league win. And the majority of Rovers fans wanted the cup win and a day out at Wembley. Uh, and the opposite has happened. Uh, Blackburn won in the league and Sheffield United won in the cup. Elsewhere in the championship, George, let's go Blackpool 1, Coventry 4. This one was a quite surprisingly open and entertaining messy game, really, particularly in the first half. Coventry City went in 2-1 up at half time. It really had been a bit different to how I expected it to look. And I don't know whether that's basically by design that Mick McCarthy has decided you know what I can't do what I normally do with teams because my defense isn't sturdy enough to keep it low margin or if he just isn't able to do what he wants to do for whatever reason because this really was quite open and some lovely strikes for Coventry Sheaf made it 1-0 McFadgen with a beautiful technique uh, to volley home in the second half they're now unbeaten in nine they've won five of those George, their last 10 goals, Giok's only scored two of them. I dare say that becoming less reliant on Giok, who previously had like, he was scoring like 40% of their goals um, before the last couple of games. I think being less reliant on him can only help them with a playoff tilt. 
Uh, and in fact, on that front, they are in the best form of any of that chunk of teams from 7th to 12th. And I think they're the most likely to make it out of those. I'm not sure where you stand on that. I know West Brom are quite well fancied to still punch their way in. Watford under Wilder, Norwich under Wagner. I think, if anyone, it's Coventry City. Interesting, yeah. I mean, Norwich are a massive concern now, where after the initial buzz when when Wagner came in and the good performances, they are now playing a very weird brand of football. Like, it's unbelievably direct. I was looking at the passing numbers in their in their game, which we'll get onto shortly. West Brom is away from a big issue. They've got to sort that out. <clears throat> I think we're seeing improvement under Wilder already. And I I still reckon they will be in the mix come the end of the season. I think we're seeing Wilder um, kind of doing his thing. But there's no denying that Coventry are probably underrated and undervalued in terms of this race um, with a, with a you know, with the bookies and also with um, the general perception of where they are because they're an unbelievably good side who show that consistently now as well. Maybe that consistency was lacking early on in the campaign. Yeah, I think when talking about this game, we've got to talk about, uh, for, for Blackpool fans' sake especially, the um, possible red card incident where Victor Ocares, um there was like an off-the-ball tussle with Callum Connolly and he kind of swings an arm then swings an elbow and seems to almost go through him with his foot as well. I mean, I, I, I would personally say that there's questionable contact with any of the the, the off-the-ball uh, swings, but the intent was clearly there. And, um, you know, it, it was seen and he was, I think, given a yellow card for it, which doesn't really make too much sense to me, um, given an off-the-ball incident. I don't really know how you can be yellow carded. And then he ended up picking up the ball five minutes later and, 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 and creating the first goal. I think if... if if Jokeres is, is sent off there, this game is very different. They're without him for three games. And, you know, he can certainly count himself pretty fortunate that he, you know, the architect of this incredible season so far isn't suddenly bearing the brunt of quite a lot of blame from commentary fans for what was a, a, a pretty moronic thing to do. Although, you know, we don't know the um, what what was uh, antagonising him to, to do that because it was in a really innocuous part of the pitch. Uh, but, you know, after doing that, it was a big game for Blackpool to after their massive win against QPR to um, you know show that that wasn't a one-off and they weren't really able to do it because Coventry were the better side. Um, set pieces were, was an area where they really hurt Blackpool with the, the goal from McFadden. Um, the d- defensive work I thought was was pretty slack from Blackpool, especially for the uh, for the Godden goal late on. Uh, Harmer a good bit of pressing to to get the ball back in the final third and, and create there. Um, Blackpool's only goal itself was a penalty through Jerry Yates for the second game in, in a row that he scored a pen and they were kind of lacking a bit in in terms of, of end product um, looking at their the way they set up it, it's a little bit strange they kind of got that back three of husband Thornley and Nelson and then even though they've got a very technical midfield especially with Patino and Fiorini in there um, it's kind of often bypassed with a with Lyons and Hamilton the two wing backs playing incredibly high uh, with Rogers in behind Yates it's you know it's what you you know you say it's not what you expect from McCarthy but in a way it's still just being pretty direct and trying to get the ball into the final third wherever possible but um, yeah I, I'm I despite that one very good win against QPR midweek um, there's a regression here and, and I, I I still think the Blackpool are, are really up against it to to stay up and Coventry showing what a good side they are by punishing them and and putting themselves as you say in the box seat to get into that top six. Well, what about Huddersfield Town? Because they won. They went above Blackpool. They're now in 22nd position. They are three points away from safety, albeit Cardiff and Rotherham both have a game in hand, uh, which is something that we will 
detail in just a second. The surprise winners of the championship weekend, certainly looking at pre-match odds, uh, going to Millwall and leaving 1-0 victors. Yeah, an amazing week for Huddersfield after their draw in, in, in midweek as well against Norwich. Uh, to come away from four points from those two games is an incredible effort. And honestly, if Neil Warnock manages to, to get this Huddersfield side out of the relegation zone at the end of the season, then that is one of his best ever achievements in management because... Um, partly because they were so poor when he took over and partly because they are still not very good. He is, he's finding a way to, for his side to win games despite being comfortably second best. Um, the frustration here from Millwall will be how they weren't able to get ahead um, when they were so dominant when the game was at 0-0. Um, you know, they were the better side. Early on, there was a, a particularly bad miss um, from Vogel Slammer uh, within the first five minutes where he skied it over the bar from close range. Bradshaw had a decent chance. Murray Wallace um, had a decent chance. And for Huddersfield, you know, they only had four shots in the whole game, the last of which in the 67th minute was a Danny Ward goal. Um, and I, I guess where you can credit um, Warnock and his management was that even though they were, the, they were worse off at 0-0, once they went ahead, Millwall didn't really have too much to, to come back with. They had half an hour or 25 minutes at home, 1-0 down against a side who don't win very often and they created very little. So credit for the way they saw out that win. I always think it's impressive when a team who hasn't won many games can see out a game like that, especially away from home. So that bodes well um, to me that if Huddersfield can get their noses in front, they're obviously capable of, of staying there. Um, but they, you know, they're still a side who create very, very little. Um, but it's it's being clinical in front of goal and Danny Ward, who hasn't been anything but critical, anything but clinical um, this season compared to last, uh, with, with a, a really important goal. That again, you know, two weeks ago now we said that it was a one out of five. The excitement for the relegation in, in the championship L- last week we said it was maybe a two, or we said that yeah in the midweek recap. Is it all? Is it now edging up to a three with with another team showing that they're not they're not done yet? Well, as we're down there, George, let, let's just talk about. Rotherham A, Cardiff City A. The A there representing the word abandoned. Uh, Match abandoned at the New York Stadium and controversy rained down on this one as well as quite a lot of actual rain. I'm not sure if you've seen the clip of The Groundsman. (laughs) That really got some heads gone on Saturday afternoon. Cardiff, for context, 1-0 up here. Georgia first half goal from Philogene, who was having himself a serious game. Uh, at half time, the heavens opened uh, and the pitch, well, in the eyes of the referee, completely unplayable. Um, there was a clip of a groundsman doing the rounds in which he is with sort of a, a very long or wide kind of rake pulling water off the pitch. And then as he walks back on the pitch, just letting it drag behind him and therefore pulling more water back on the pitch. I'd still say overall, you know, net, he probably put more water off the pitch than he did put it back on the pitch. But it wasn't a great look for those looking for evidence that Rotherham might have not wanted the game to continue being as they were 1-0 down. I'm interested to hear your thoughts here. I can absolutely see why that clip would infuriate a Cardiff fan in the heat of the moment, in the heat of battle. As not a Cardiff fan, uh, it didn't really infuriate me. It didn't look great. I didn't believe it was a large conspiracy. I don't believe that anyone needs necessarily to be punished. I don't believe that Cardiff need to be given the win. Uh, Unfortunately, the rules are pretty clear. The game will be replayed. It will be replayed from the start. It will be nil-nil at the start. And 
it's very, very unfortunate for Cardiff City. I don't think it's anything more than that. And anyone who saw the state of the pitch will know that that football match could not have continued. Yeah, I mean, the the, the grounds, I'm, I'm watching it now and it is <laughs> totally ridiculous. I mean, yeah, it's not great. I, I watched the highlights of this, even though it, it's annoyingly for him. Kian Atete managed to injure himself with one of the best dribbles I think I've seen of a football in a long time. Um, ridiculous feet. <laughs> one of those where you can tell that he's just he's he's in a different world as he's doing it, where his feet are thinking fast in his head, and he's and he just manages to keep on going. Then as soon as he gets rid of the ball, you suddenly see him go like, oh no, oh no, and then go down on his haunches. And it was in the 44th minute, and then he went off, and then it was obviously. Uh, abandoned just after half time so hopefully it's not too bad an injury but at least and and the you know the run itself was for nothing obviously if you're a Cardiff fan we've had a lot of controversies in football over however long we have the the Derby um, Wickham and Middlesbrough stuff from the last couple of years of course we have the um, Hawkeye not being turned on in the um, Premier League relegation battle during the summer of Covid yeah if and, and I totally agree that the game had to be called off and the pitch wasn't playable. But, you know, if, if the game is replayed and, and Rotherham beat Cardiff and Cardiff get relegated, I think you can understand, especially because of the existence of that video, which realistically probably has absolutely nothing to do with no bearing at all on whether or not the game would have gone ahead or not. You can understand why Cardiff fans would feel incredibly aggrieved. Um, and I'm sure there would be that that wouldn't be the end of it. As you said that, I remembered the 2018 controversy where a very important game between Derby and Cardiff was called off uh, before the game I should say due to bad weather and there was plenty of uh, anger from the part of Cardiff at, at Derby perhaps not doing as much as they could to get that game on because it suited them not to play where Cardiff were, were going there with their tails up so frustrating to be on the wrong side of it I guess a couple of times um, and yeah this game will be one to circle in your diary uh, when it gets rearranged maybe it has been rearranged I don't know yet um, but yeah that'll be a pretty spicy one I think it's fair to say uh, QPR nil, Birmingham City 1 I mean QPR's comedy of errors continues whether it's Albert Adoma's attempt to dive in and win the ball in the build-up to Chong's opener, which completely opened up their defence and led to Chong smashing in after a ball across from the left. Uh, Some of the ways that QPR conspired not to score, some opportunities that they they had, particularly near the end, where the ball was ricocheting around and various QPR players were having a dig. They've just got a lot of things to work through right now. Um, it's, it's It's so bleak and it's been so bleak. And it's... It's it's the type of bleak where because they've changed manager and it hasn't got any better, George, I almost feel from a fan perspective that's that's probably the hardest of the lot where you just basically feel completely helpless because it doesn't seem obvious at all how things could change around with this group of players, with whoever's in the dugout. While things are as they are, things could never be good again. The reality is things may turn around at some point. It's just very, very hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel at this stage. Wild things or wild things. I couldn't work out if you did that on purpose. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I've never seen such a collective head and hands from a, a home support uh, as behind the goal when Tahir Chung tucks home. You know, after the after the defeat for those fans, especially went up to Blackpool to see them getting beaten six one on Tuesday night. Um, to then concede after three minutes at home to a side who are pretty out of form as well and have little to play for who are above you in the table in terms of the relegation race. 
Um, and then uh, when one nil down to continue to be the, the you know the the poorer side, um, they created so little in the game. Um, Seni Dieng, who hasn't had a great season, was was their best player on the day, uh, which tells its own story. Yeah, I'm getting a bit worried for for Gareth Ainsworth. You know, I I think when he probably came in and looked at the players that he had available and looked at the teams towards the bottom in their form. I think looking despite that that win at home to Watford I think looking at the, you know the table as it is now is basically as bad as it feasibly could have gone in terms of a couple of those teams who look dead and buried of now picking up points what is it four defeats in five for Ainsworth himself for Ainsworth and his and his QPR side and now they really are there like they really are at risk here where if they don't somehow find a way to get themselves into games and get themselves points, then then they could easily get relegated this season. Um, it's one of the biggest collapses, biggest bubble bursts I've seen in, in one season. To think back to September, early October time, when there was genuine talk of QPR being a, a, a possible automatic promotion winner, a title winner, uh, when, during that good run under Mick Beale. Um, it is, you know... Uh, it, it's so frustrating in one sense where a really innovative, good bit of managerial recruitment can basically end up causing such unrest at a club where they've just been punished. They've been punished for hiring a guy who had whose stock was immediately very high and had you know the ambition to go and work at a club where he had a prior um, a prior relationship. And for that, they were suddenly left high and dry, having taken a punt on someone in the summer. It's so difficult. But for Gareth Ainsworth now, it's a, it's a horrible job because, um, you know, you heard the boos ring out after the game. That's unsurprising. And you know, even though Ainsworth feels to me to be a pretty solid option if they're in League One next season, that is unthinkable. And, and I don't know if he would be entrusted with that if, if they do end up there. Does it make you rethink your general stance on hiring managers? I can picture you saying many many times on this podcast that you know you should you're trying to where possible hire managers as long as you think they're going to be good managers at the start of their managerial career uh, before their stock has risen so that they in theory if they are really good can take you on a journey with them at least to start with of course that was more or less what QPR did with Mick Beale has that made you rethink at all your stance or, or would you say well it was more about how they responded to it than the problem of doing it in the first place I think the latter. I don't think you can ever, you know, it's a good problem to have if your manager is going to be um, coming under interest from, from clubs higher up the pyramid. You obviously ensure that you're well protected in terms of um, the compensation that comes with losing a, a contract member of staff. I think the biggest issue, and, you know, I feel like sometimes we hark back to things we've said in the past that are good. Hopefully we also have mentioned things when they're not so good. Um but we said when, when Critchley was was hired, you know, it, it's a it's he's a very good manager, long term will probably be a success. But it's a pretty weird succession plan when you have hired a squad to play in a very certain way under under Mick Beale, and then you go out and hire someone who's a you know his one successful team that he's managed previously played in a very different way, and B has literally just been sacked from a job where he failed to succeed. Mick Beale was was a pretty strange succession plan. So. I think having a clearer identity in terms of managerial recruitment is important and, you know, it feels like a an evolution or, or the reverse of, of management to go 
Beal, Critchley, Ainsworth, when you've still got the, the squad that was playing so well under, under Mick Beal, that suggests to me that there's a clear way that, the, that that group of players want to play. You know, Willock and Chair are missing at the moment. Um, I, I completely disagree with the idea that they're not Ainsworth players. You, know, you just have to look at Anis Mameti to see what Ainsworth can do with a, a, a very technically gifted, diminutive forward player just because a lot of it is direct doesn't mean that he can't engineer occasions for those players to get on the ball in certain areas, especially when you've got aerially dominant um, strikers for them to to kind of target. But um, yeah, it's I would say that the blame here has to lie with, with those who are meant to be overlooking the, the strategy at the club rather than the, the, the two managers that have come in since Bill left. Well, let's touch on Birmingham, the winners, who are just pulling out wins when they need them, just to keep the relegation zone at bay. They're now two points off last season's tally, with eight games still to go. Uh, If they get nine points from their final eight games, very doable. It'll be their best points total since Gary Rowett was in charge. Um, Ryan Deeney providing those stats. Ryan's also written up a really interesting piece on Birmingham's current situation and in particular they're planning ahead of next season there's still a ton of work to be done by those running the football side of this football club that's without even touching on all of the uncertainty off the field uh, and who knows whether that will be resolved but um, I really like the way that John Eustace has operated this season they had a horrendous spell of form just after I said he was the Lionel Scaloni of the championship I did feel bad about that I felt some personal responsibility for it Um, but in this they did what they needed to do they, they won the battle uh, Bielik in particular was very very good um, defensively in this game and helped them win it Chong with that early goal George on Sunday Swansea beat Bristol City 2-0 oh this was necessary for them I tell you say what you like about Russell Martins Swansea the one thing you can't argue with is that they step up in league games against their main rivals his record against Cardiff City in the league three games three wins his record against Bristol City in the league, three wins at one draw. I realise that the Cardiff game is more important for Swansea than the Bristol City game, but this won't have hurt, will it? Uh, yeah, massive. It's um, it's a big game for Russell Martin, probably more so than a big game for, for Swansea. Obviously, you know, rivalries aside, in terms of um, uh, the last few weeks being pretty damaging to to what he's trying to build there and, and in terms of unifying the, the club as well, you know, sticking to a certain identity, but... And with fans seemingly understanding that Martin had maybe been let down in January, I think when you lose so many games consistently without too much in way of performance, it's inevitable that even you know, even if that is true, question marks will be asked to the manager. But this was the best display we've seen from Swansea for such a long time. They were totally dominant in every single facet of their play. You know, apart from maybe the possession side of things, where they were still they still have more of the ball, they still dominated possession. But they um, maybe didn't press quite as much. They allowed Bristol City to have some time on it as well. And um, the, the game, I think, was far less open for that reason. Swansea looking far more defensively assured, only limiting uh, Bristol City to six shots in total, despite going ahead fairly early, controlling the game, um, always looking like the, the more likely team to score. It was a massive improvement. Can I ask about Cham's assist for Cullen's first goal? Because... You may tell me it was complete fluke, but I'm choosing to believe he meant to pull off the Ronaldinho-esque <laughs> first touch off the back. I I thought probably not, but I will. I'm I'm happy to. Um, you know, he's he's a player capable of, of some pretty good things. So 
So maybe we'll give it to him. Um, but yeah, no, they were, they were they were superb on the on the day. And Bristol City showing themselves again. You know, after that incredible run of form, aspirations to break into the top half. Two two defeats in a week, and two defeats with a whimper. Really, um, it's hard to really work out why their their identity seems to be just a, a lack of consistency. Well, I think I think the easy explanation, and I think it's one that the fans are, are happy to go with at the moment, is that they are very bare bones at the moment. Um, Pring's been starting at centre back for the last few games, and there were a few games where he had, a, uh, you know, put in some good performances. But that doesn't seem like a viable long term option. Um, it's not the most sturdy looking back for uh, and in midfield. Again, injuries, particularly at the base of midfield. Andy King played alongside Omar Taylor Clark here, who got his first start, a 19 year old academy graduate. Six academy pre- players in the in the starting eleven, and I think understanding that. Bristol City won't make the playoffs and they won't get relegated, but they still have eight or nine games. You know, they can look to give those players like Taylor Clark some minutes. They can work out how first team ready they are. They can work out key areas to improve uh, recruitment wise over the summer. And they can get some minutes into the likes of Kane Wilson, who came off the bench here, who still hasn't really settled into a Bristol City shirt after an early season injury, uh, into Anis Mometi, who also came off the bench here. Those are guys who could be you know, as good as new signings come the start of next season if they're ready to contribute. So um, I don't think it's necessarily the end of the world for Bristol City. There was a a poor run a couple of months ago that felt a little more concerning than this, I would say. Uh, Lots of draws in the champ. We had the abandoned game. Uh, We had Stoke nil, Norwich nil, where... Stoke continued to impress. Uh, Clearly the better side here. They they drew with Barre midweek and they impressed there as well. Very strong spells they had in both halves here with a flurry of shots in each, but just lack the finishing touch. Uh, as for Norwich, it's two points in a week for them. Uh, games against Huddersfield and Stoke, that's not going to get them where they want to get to, which is above the closest dotted line to take them into the playoffs. Um, Sunderland won, Luton won. George, I feel like Luton come out of this with, with kind of yet more credit, really. Um, their performance levels probably higher than they've ever been. And I, I'm, I do not say that flippantly or glibly or lightly because they were brilliant under Nathan Jones. But I get a different feeling from this team. I think there's more confidence about them. Uh, and going up to the Stadium of Light and being the better side, uh, I think only kind of uh, du- makes me double down on that. Quite a lot of doubt over the awarding of Sunderland's equalising penalty, but uh, no doubt as to the quality of Ahmad Diallo's finishing of it. I've got a good stat for you. Oh, yes. Um, just talking about, I mean, it's it's kind of irrelevant to this game, but I noticed it um, over the weekend, where Luton play, play with the front two in Carlton Morris and Elijah Adebayo, if you didn't know. Um, you. Do you know which two players in the championship uh, top the charts for the most shots taken within the six-yard box? Is it, oh, this is a tough one, Elijah Adebayo and Carlton Morris? No, it's Alfie Doughty. No, yeah, it is. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, which is, I just think, really cool because it, it's, it, it shows a team where, you know, in my mind, when you have a front two, whether it's like a little and large partnership or however, however you do it, there are very clear roles. But I really like the idea that you have two strikers who are both large and large. <laughs> yeah, no, but are both are both basically able to to play multifaceted roles where we know that Carl Morris is very very good at dropping in and linking play um, he is a he's good at holding up the ball he's good at bringing guns into play but he's also the penalty box striker and then we know that Adebayo is very good at running the channels and we very know that he we know as we saw last week he's able to stand players up he's able to go past them 
Um, and he's also somebody who can link up play well. And, you know, it's obviously very cohesive that rather than having two players who are maybe, you know, they're not ultimately similar profiles of player, but, but they have similar strengths to the game, are able to utilise those strengths whilst also both being able to be penalty box strikers. I thought that was, you know, um, a just a well done to, to Nathan Jones and Rob Edwards for being able to, to curate a team where that is possible because it feels like in, in a whole league for those two to top the charts. Um, that is basically just good management, good coaching and, and good from them. Anyway. But George, no, quickly, well done you for taking a statistic that you've seen and for turning it into some really interesting insight that uses the statistic, that expands on the statistic and that makes a really interesting and a wider point based off the statistic. Too many statistics. God, I've said that word a lot in the last 20 seconds. Too many statistics just being presented these days, but you need someone to expand on it to get real value from it. That's what you've done. And can I just say, that's what I think you do really, really well. And it's always a pleasure to hear. Thanks very much. Is that a way of you saying thank you for my nice words at the beginning of the podcast? Yes, it is. If we're going to go on this tangent, because I was actually having a, a Twitter debate i don't know what's like a word for like like argument or, or, or debate no but what's a word for one that's like wholly unaggressive i like think debate a, is fine debate still just feels a little bit disagree anyway um with, with john mckenzie uh, of TIFO. a discussion yeah a chat where we were arguing different things um where it's about that that stat that often gets wheeled out on on all coverage of football so there's no like one um you know uh broadcaster or um uh, you know media source whatever who use it more often than the other but it's this whole thing about like did you know that x team have won 95 percent of their games when they've got under 50 percent possession as if that in itself is like a sign that they are they are good when they don't have the ball and then they're bad when they have the ball and my what i would just like to say is that i mean i'm sure sometimes that is true but more often than not the reason why they have less of the ball is because they're winning or losing, right? So the reason why, if you're a team that isn't particularly possession heavy, so therefore you have the ball somewhere between like 45 and 55% of possession in most games because you're a team who basically set up to be compact and to kind of press from like a mid, mid to low block. So like still be fairly aggressive off the ball, but not be a pressing side. And when you have the ball, you know, look to, to keep it to an extent, but also not look to pass around the back for long pass sequences. That means that when you're ahead in games, naturally you are going to drop into a certain, um, you know, you're going to drop in more, you're going to look to protect your lead and therefore invite the opposition onto you more and have less of the ball. And if you are behind in games, then they're going to do the same thing to you. So it's a a self-fulfilling prophecy, basically. And that's just wanted to get it off my chest whilst I can. Um, Please, can we stop using that as a reverse argument for analysing teams? Okay. Sunderland 1, Luton 1 was a game where Sunderland, the team who um, were behind for most of the game, had 58% possession. So there you go. That's interesting. Um, uh, but they drew one all. And um, yeah, Luton were, were the better side f- up until the goal. Um, Alfie Doughty with a um, a strike that Patterson will, will feel. I mean, it was it was a quite a weird, it was a quite a weird goal where... It's, it kind of came through bodies and I think it looked like Patterson almost expected it to get a deflection and it, and it just didn't and it managed to kind of squirm under him into the back of the net. No denying it was a, a goalkeeper error. Patterson's had a pretty decent season. He'd had a pretty decent get, uh, time of the game prior to that. Um, but the big 
point in this one was the um, was the penalty decision, which led to the goal. Um, it looked pretty soft to me. The weirdest part of this, in my mind, was how the referee, who had a pretty good view of it, seemed to kind of say it wasn't a penalty, look over to his linesman, who didn't flag, and then suddenly decide to give the penalty, which I think if I was a Luton fan would, would probably annoy me more than anything else. Um it was pretty soft. Osho looked like he may have kind of outstretched a hand and kind of made contact with, with Ahmad's arm, but there wasn't really a tug. It didn't really look like it, it did anything to, to stop his path or to stop his, his ability to, to progress. Uh, but he sucked the penalty away well. Um, you know, it, it's an annoying one for Luton because a win there would have kept them in that race to try and chase down Sheffield United. It now looks pretty unlikely. And it's a point that, that doesn't do a great deal for Sunderland. You know, it's it's, it's a point that, I guess, helps them in, in terms of their attempts to try and break into that playoff race. But it, it's, it's looking pretty unlikely at this stage. Watford drew one all to Wigan Athletic. Wigan Athletic's players and staff still, at time of recording on Monday lunchtime, haven't been paid wages, which are now more than a week overdue. They've played two games uh, since they were due and since they have not been paid. Sean Maloney went straight from Vicarage Road to Bahrain after this game to find answers from the owners who, shock horror, have gone pretty quiet. Uh, There's been a few statements released by different supporters groups um, detailing their concerns, detailing what they feel needs to happen. Um, We echo uh, all of the thoughts and concerns of the fans at this moment. I mean, the players are an absolute credit to themselves George, for coming back here, Watford were on top, uh, Wigan 1-0 down in the first half and there would have been many sets of human beings in those conditions who may have have decided to sack it off, throw in the towel. But they have a great spirit, that's clear here. And they got the equalising goal through James McLean. What a header. Yeah, can I just say this is one of those real quirks of watching loads and loads and loads of EFL football and EFL highlights. I don't know if you did this. When McLean arrived from the right-hand side to head home across from the left, my initial thought was, I've, I haven't seen him play on the right side <laughs> for, I mean, not for the whole season and maybe before that as well. Uh, and then I realised he had just taken a set piece from the right-hand side. That's why he's <laughs> yeah, still nice. there. Um, Watford's defending on that goal does not help accusations of laziness and not caring enough which have been levelled at these players they've obviously defended the first phase of the set piece and then half of them have cleared up off the pitch but they were still defending to be done uh, Wigan exploited it and got a point and then Reading won Hull won uh, Hull's goal was a, a real treat I thought you can count basically 10 or 11 perfect touches from Seri into Slater Slater into Triore, and then releasing Slater uh, to finish but the £35 million pound man, Andy Carroll, equalised for Reading after a, a set-piece bobbled around the area. And that was that 1-1. Um, still no points deduction confirmed or otherwise for Reading. Paul Lintz said he reckons Thursday is D-Day for them in terms of learning whether the EFL will deduct them points or not. Quick promo before League One. During this fake ad break, why not take the time to sign up to the EFL newsletter by NTT20? You can head to ntt20.substack.com or click the link in the description of the podcast. Enjoy! George, the League One weekend started on Friday night. Sheffield Wednesday 1, Bolton Wanderers 1. A couple of generous deflections allowed first Lee Gregory and then Victor Adeboyejo to net for each team. Uh, There wasn't a huge amount else in that game, to be honest with you. I think 1-1 was probably a a fair result. It's not a poor result for either side in and of itself 
But because of the three teams below Wednesday winning, and because there are a couple of playoff chases winning, it does mean that both teams had others get closer to them over the weekend. Wednesday's unbeaten run stretches to 23, half of a season unbeaten. Astounding. Uh, But... As discussed, three teams got closer to them, George. Plymouth Argyle, Ipswich Town and Barnsley. Who would you like to talk about first? Plymouth Argyle, I think, because this was a statistically weird game. Um, They beat Forest Green 2-0. It was as cosy as you'd probably anticipate, even though Plymouth didn't really create a great deal. They took the lead through James Bolton after eight minutes and then kind of toyed with Forest Green uh, until Barley Mumba scored a header, which we haven't seen too often. Um, to make it 2-0 and what happened then which I don't you don't really see very often is that both teams basically just decided yeah let's just kind of forget about the goal and forget about really trying to tackle each other the, the passing stats for this game are absolutely mad like <laughs> I've never seen this in a in an EFL game before where attempted passes right attempted passes like you know, Man City don't get to this number very often. Plymouth Argyle attempted 815 passes in the game. <laughs> Forest Green with 289, which isn't a low number um, for this kind of stuff. Like That is absolutely mad. Um, Gillespie, 153 passes attempted in the game. Bolton, 140. Matt Butcher in the middle of the park, 111. Uh, yeah, it basically was like when it got to 2-0, both teams basically looked at each other and said, look, we're going to win this. You've, you're that you're you're relegated. Let's just make sure no, no one gets injured, and we'll we'll both get home for dinner. Really bizarre. Um, I'd love to hear from anyone who was at the game what that last half an hour was. Like, what the whole game was like. Really, was it just was it quite boring? Like I don't really I don't really understand. Like, in terms of completed passes, it's seven seven hundred and fifty eight completed passes from from Argyle. Like that is. I mean, I'd love to find out what what like Man City's. Um, I, I can't imagine City have, have, have got over that too many times this season, if at all. 19 home games this season, 17 home wins this season for Argyle. Uh, and Ipswich Town, same scoreline at home to Shrewsbury. The comfort and control with which Ipswich Town are winning football matches has to be of some concern for Argyle and for Sheffield Wednesday. It is six wins to nil in a row now. Uh, They kept a clean sheet and a nil-nil before this run. So seven clean sheets in a row. Teams struggling to lay a glove on them. Uh, It's not that Shrewsbury didn't give this a good go. It's not that they didn't play well. Uh, Certainly missing some key players in midfield. And Ipswich were able to control that area. The Wesburns-George Hurst assist goal combo put them ahead again uh, for the second game in a row. uh, And Mas Luongo arrived late uh, to score the second goal and make it safe for them. They're in good nick. So are Barnsley. George, they beat Wickham 1-0. It strikes me that Mike Duff can do no wrong at the moment because this was a pretty tight game and it was won by two substitutes. Luke Thomas setting up Slobodan Tedic to win it. Yeah, a game with nothing really in it. I mean, I I, I tipped up Barnsley in the betting show, but my preview for it was pretty bad because I, I thought um, Barnsley would be able to um, create a fair bit. Um, you know, I, I guess I got it right that, that Wickham didn't themselves um not many teams do against Barnsley but there, there wasn't really much between the two sides up to that point um but Tedich as you say coming off the bench and, and, and scoring probably the best chance of the game um late on to make it 1-0 uh, and that is you know when you've got when you're as solid as Barnsley are you, you don't really need too much in order to, to get ahead um 
so yeah, a, a big win for them. It, it now really does feel like it's 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 two from four who are going to get promoted. There's a very clear top four now, I think, in League One with automatically um, promoted, right? Automatically promoted, yeah. I mean, with, with Derby and um, and Bolton dropping points again, you know, it's a huge game in midweek, basically. Like it feels like if, if Barnsley can get three points against against Sheffield Wednesday on on Tuesday night, then if Barnsley could win that game, then it's it's properly two into four. Uh, where if, if Sheffield Wednesday could win that, you, you kind of feel like they're gone, and everyone else is is playing for second. I think Matt Bloomfield will be absolutely fuming with the manner of the goal that Wickham conceded here. A seemingly harmless throw in on the left side for Barnsley, and they just worked it a couple of a couple a little sort of interchange, and then Thomas managed to burst around the outside of a defender and, and clip in across for Tedic. A brilliant near post header, but frustrating from a defensive perspective for sure. Twenty nine points in Barnsley's last eleven games, nine wins and two draws in eleven. Uh, that game on Tuesday night, Sheffield Wednesday, travelling to Oakwell, mouth. Water. I can barely speak because my mouth is filled. You can't speak with water. <laughs> George, why don't you tell me about the most impressive and surprise result of the weekend? Derby County nil, Fleetwood Town two. What a win for the Cod Army! What a win! And Jaden Stockley with the best goal of his career that won't get, get credited to him. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it, before Derby really knew what was going on. They were two 0 down here, um, conceding two two goals. Carlos Mendez Gomez with it with a decent goal for the second. I think as much as as I love Connor, you know he he, he chases Carlos Mendez Gomez down. He then gives up on it, and then when CMG uh, cuts onto his left foot, you know the space is there where maybe it shouldn't be. Um, but yeah, the first goal from Stockley's, you know, it's an unbelievable hit that is obviously known goal because it hits the woodwork and comes back off Will Smith's back on, into the goal. And Derby weren't great after that either. You know they, I've said it a lot over the last couple of weeks. It feels like they're in a real funk at the moment. Um, you know, they're not playing well week in, week out. And with a couple of sides outside the playoffs looking pretty good at the moment, um, they've got to be careful because their their bid for an automatic promotion race could quite suddenly turn into a bit of a nightmare in terms of making the playoffs. Yeah, you feel like Fleetwood can start planning for next season too. They have been highly impressive uh, compared to pre-season expectations. Ours, sure, but I think a lot of other people saw that they survived last season with, was it 40 points, stayed up with that. Um, saw a, a manager in Scott Brown with no previous managerial experience. Saw a club that certainly in the summer, it seemed, was still going to go for youth uh, and young players and particularly promoting a lot of players from their under-23 team to play for the first team. As the case was, actually, they did some pretty ambitious recruitment, uh, particularly through the loan market at the end of the summer transfer window and then uh, in January getting Stockley and Marriott in as well. So uh, they've they've certainly helped themselves with some of that. Um, but overall, it's just been a really uh, solid team that Scott Brown has built and they've picked up some really, really uh, impressive results this season. This may be the best of the lot. Uh, Lincoln nil, Peterborough United 3 Surely the weirdest EFL stat quirk of the season. Lincoln's uh, home unbeaten run, which lasted the whole season until the weekend, that saw them only winning four of their 17 games in which they went unbeaten. That has come to an end uh, at the hands of Peterborough United, uh, who have won three games in four, George, and, and now will be starting to dream of, of crashing the playoff party. I'm, I don't really know where I stand with this because... I really enjoy watching Peterborough when they win. I really enjoy watching them attack when they attack well. And I want to be excited about their potential to crash the playoffs. But I think, more honestly, I still don't particularly trust them. <laughs> and and I therefore, I don't think I can quite be convinced 
that they are going to punch their way in. Either way, you can't argue with the win. Uh, and Johnson Clark Harris is now four clear at the top of the League One Golden Boot charts. I think they might punch their way in. And the reason for that is just because I would say that they're maybe better teams. There, there are a few in terms of consistency. With Peterborough, you know that they are capable on their day of, of basically just, just winning so comfortably against most sides in League One. Like basically, if Peterborough show up, they win against 19 of the teams in this division. Um, and that was the case at Burton. That was the case at, at Lincoln because of their because because of their attacking players. Basically, like when they are able to get into an attacking rhythm, they win. Uh, and when they don't, that they're, they're pretty poor. And that's Jekyll and Hyde. But that does mean that you you rack up the point. This was another example of that. Lincoln done playing out from the back again for the first goal, which is kind of strange for a team who've been so resolute defensively to suddenly have an issue where they are they're being caught out taking taking chances within their own third which they haven't really done all season um I'm not entirely sure what's happening there but but Peterborough were able to kind of ease clear after that after Johnson Clark Harris scored the first um Joe Ward very nearly scored a very good second goal hitting the post he got his goal late on in the game and yeah it was a deserved win as I said that there wasn't probably wasn't three goals between them in the game, but this is you know our old friend variants rearing its ugly head again, where Lincoln have come out on top or or in parity in games where they maybe have been second best, and here there wasn't much in it, and they come away losing three zip. Portsmouth they crack on as well, uh, an away win for them at Bristol Rovers, and it's Colby Bishop at the double. He's now second in the goal scoring charts. He's got six in six. First one was a really nice take in behind, sort of goal of that. I don't think I've seen Colby Bishop score a lot. Um, and yet, I also believe him to have been half a yard offside, so probably shouldn't have stood. Joey Barton certainly didn't think so. Um, six in six for Bishop. You might remember that just before this goal-scoring streak, he was getting some stick from the fans for not scoring enough goals, uh, which I actually alluded to at the time because I was trying to defend him for still having a great presence up front and clearly being heavily involved in, in the goals that they were scoring, even if it wasn't him scoring. Uh, he looks electric right now, to be honest. He certainly looks to have grown in confidence. And I think it's worth remembering that that Bishop came to Accrington from non-league. It's only a couple of seasons in professional football. And, and therefore, I would believe that there's still a bit of space for him to grow. And, and I think Portsmouth, well, you have to say now it's been a, a brilliant signing and he's contributing heavily to a team that are picking up a lot of points under John Moussinho uh, and winning a lot of games. It's four away wins since he joined uh, and four home wins uh, as well. A strong end to the season, it looks like, for them on the cards. There was a nice clip of Riley Towler, uh, came through the youth system at Bristol City, very famous online for having one of the stronger Br- uh, Bristolian accents that exists on planet Earth, um, talking about doors and wheels of course, back in the day. Uh, and he's already a cult hero at Portsmouth, two two months into being a Pompey player. Uh, he was pretty similar at AFC Wimbledon on loan in the first half of the season. So very, very popular lad. And there he is, Bristol City Academy product, celebrating in front of the away end at the Mem. A very, very good video, which is the sort of thing that you'll find on ntt20.substack.com when we start uh, our content in earnest next week. I'll be sticking on all the best bits of content from the EFL weekend as part of our weekend notes post on a Monday. Mmm, intriguing, I'd say. I called Fleetwood the most impressive result of the weekend, George, so that I could call MK Dons' win at Accrington the most significant result of the weekend. This does very good things for their survival hopes. It lifts them above Accrington Stanley, above the relegation zone, 
Unfortunately, on the flip side, it does not spell good vibes for Accrington and John Coleman. Uh, it was a nice bit of skill and finish from Sully Kai Kai to put MK ahead. Uh, and they saw it out, I would say, with impressive comfort. And this might be a bit of confirmation bias, but it's hard to ignore the fact that Dean Lewington, their stalwart player who missed three months through injury, he was back from injury before their game, their last game before this, which was the Cambridge game. Uh, Mark Jackson changed the shape to move back to a three at the back system. That suits Lewington, who struggles a little bit in a four, but is very good in that left centre back position in a three. Uh, and since then, MK Dons have won both games to nil. So I'm going to say Lewington's return has been very, very important. Uh, that was one of my stances on the betting show, George, that MK Dons would beat Accrington Stanley. I did not get it right with Cambridge and Charlton. Charlton winning 2-1 at the Abbey. Yeah, they did. A, a massive week for Charlton. And, um, you know, I spoke about when we talk about things we got right. <clears throat> you know, Dean Holden certainly has, has had a week that has rammed some of my words back down my throat because um, going having two games on the road, albeit against, you know, two teams who are both odds-on to get relegated, um, scoring six goals, six points um, off the back of that new contract, it, it puts Charlton in a much stronger position now. Um, and great to see um, Lieburn getting a, a goal, um, a player who's maybe had a, a slightly quieter second half of the season than we expected after um, you know blitzing his way onto the scene early on. Those are the kind of goals that I think we can anticipate he'll score, just a you know a six-yard tap in, um, and then Raksaki with a return to form with his um, with a, a second goal there. It's incredibly damaging for Cambridge. Um, they are just losing too many games. Um, the only win in, in recent times is that home win against Oxford, but apart from that, they've been been incredibly poor. Um, you know, it, it feels like we've been saying the same things about Cambridge for the last three or four months, really. Where. I don't really know what they do. Um, they are a side who lose when they play badly and they and they, they lose when they play well. Um, this wasn't one of the times where they played well. Agreed. They've conceded the first goal more than any other League One team this season and they haven't come back to get anything from a game in which they've fallen behind since Boxing Day. Um, but a strong week for Holden's Addicts. Back-to-back away wins for them. Much needed after what was a pretty insipid home draw against Accrington uh, the Saturday before. George, Cheltenham 3, Exeter 1. Or Port Vale to Burton three. Which of those do you want to go with? Port Vale to Burton three. Yeah, massive for Burton, I guess. Just in terms of, of being beaten five two at home, going one nil down away from home against against Port Vale, and then just scoring three three goals to, to basically kill the kill the game and kill the tie. Um, they, uh, I just think Dino Mamria, the, the job that he's basically done at Burton will will be lost. I got a stat. Yeah, go on. From mid-September onwards, so six months, Burton have picked up the 10th most points in League One. Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably an argument. That's unbelievable. For Mamria, for Mamria to be in the conversation for manager of the season, personally, um, taking over a side who, you know, were, you know, it's mad that he was assistant manager, but they were basically destined for relegation, incredibly poor, and without much in terms of, of new bloods, uh, in terms of playing, you know, new players and the rest of it, he's managed to turn that group of players into, as you say, uh, the tenth best team in the, in the league under his tenure. That is incredible, uh, and it looks like he's going to lead them to, sa- to safety. And he's done so in a way where it's not necessarily, you know, you think of when you're trying to lead a team away from from the bottom three. It's built on, you know, if we don't concede too many goals, then we have to pick up points. All about clean sheets. Burton are a, a very, very good attacking force. And as they showed that again here too. So, yeah, massive credit to them. 
Port Vale's season is is kind of uh, just circling the drain, really, isn't it? Um, where... Makes it sound like they're getting relegated rather than just putting their flip-flops on and heading to a, a, the beach for a well-earned yeah, break. Yeah, that's true. No, I, I guess it's more just any any hopes of doing anything crazy after that really good run. Did they have a good run or did they just have good numbers? I can't remember. <laughs> I feel like... A bit of both, wasn't it? Mostly just good XG. There was a time in like December where it was like, ooh, Exeter, Port Vale and Bristol Rovers. Could they break into the playoffs? And the answer is definitely <laughs> not. Um, I think their best run this season was four wins in six around December. <laughs> it's not... October. They won four wins and six. They got four from six in October. So there you go. You're just lying. They did, did they? They didn't win four in six at any point in October. I'm looking at their fixtures here because uh, one of them is a football league trophy game. It's Wolves under twenty ones, mate. There you go. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't do it in December either. So you're a liar too. Yes, they did. You're just using a better website. Exactly. Than me. Use soccer stats, folks, for easy run analysis. Anyway, they're not very good anymore. So that's a shame. I tell you who got good at a good time to get good. Cheltenham Town. They beat Exeter 3-1. It means they've won three and drawn one in their last four. Ten points from four games at just the right time. And they're now eight points clear of the relegation zone. There may even be complacency in my voice when I speak about them. But as you can probably tell, I think they're going to be fine. But it didn't feel like that necessarily one month ago. A first EFL goal for the Irish striker Aidan Keener, who's getting some good game time at the moment. A son of Martin Taylor, Caleb, then nodded them back in front after Josh Key's equaliser. And lovely Alfie May with a textbook 1v1 finish sealed the win. Brilliant first touch, brilliant take, just looks so confident at the moment. And it's a guy who finished last season with, what was it, 17 goals in 19 or something? I think we can expect a few more from Alfie in the next few weeks. Uh, and Morecambe won, Oxford won, Manning the new man in. Familiar woes for Oxford George just seem allergic to winning, really, even when having the better the better of games. Yeah, didn't really necessarily even have the better of the game. I mean, restricted Morecambe to, to basically no decent opportunities, created one decent opportunity themselves, which, which Marcus Brown scored. And then as has been the case for most of the season, um, someone takes a shot from 20 yards and it kind of rolls into the goal and not really in the corner. <laughs> and that's about it. Um the issue for Oxford now is is the run-in where there was a, a massive game on Saturday against Cheltenham at home, which I was very much looking forward to going to, uh, which has been postponed due to Cheltenham having international call-ups. Um, and rather, therefore, than playing Cheltenham at home on Saturday, Oxford are going to have to basically see teams around them picking up points. And then their run of games coming up is heinous. Uh, I cannot stress that more. Um, where... Next up, it's Peterborough away, and then Sheffield Wednesday at home, then Port Vale away, and then Bolton and Pompey at home, and then Barnsley away. Um, you know, I, I'm sitting on a thirty to one ticket on Oxford to get relegated. I think it's currently five to one with the best. Absolutely sports disgraceful. Books. Never bet on your own team to get relegated. Who are you, mate? Well, I know it's you know it's a it's a nice emotional hedge that you can cry yourself to to sleep whilst booking a nice summer holiday somewhere. But it's yeah, it's 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 pretty desperate, and it still doesn't feel like uh, there is apart from amongst the Oxford fan base. It feels like people haven't quite got hold of the fact yet that I think Oxford are basically about as likely to get relegated as, as most of the sides down there. Only hedging you should be doing if Oxford get relegated is throwing yourself into a prickly hedge in order to feel physical pain to match the 
mental and emotional pain that you'll feel. That's the only hedging I want to see. In League 2, I'm going to start with two draws because it contains all three of the top three. Leighton Orient 2, Cole U 2. Confusing. Uh, It felt like Leighton Orient coasting to another home win without fuss at 2-0 up. I was sure they'd keep another clean sheet. They've only conceded six in 18 home games before this. So how did they throw away a two-goal lead to lowly Cole Yu? Well, a looping set-piece header from Connor Hall. And then a brilliant, quite exciting solo goal from Noah Chilvers, the sort that needs Titanic music over it. That did the trick for Cole Yu. I want to know, and you can you can message us anonymously if you know how to do that, how many Cole Yu fans had left, right, at 2-0. Because... I wouldn't even necessarily have a go at you for that. Statistically, away at Orient, 2-0 down, you might as well try and get an earlier train. But it would mean you've missed maybe your, one of your best away days of the season. Uh, so, yeah, own up, if you like. This is like our sort of fess hole equivalent. Um, Chamado and Chilvers playing very, very well. Brilliant early result for Ghana to get, you think, just from a sort of fan's PR standpoint, you know. Bit of, bit of fighting spirit being shown and Garner will get some credit for that. And Carlisle nil, Stevenage nil. This was big match preview. Second v third in League Two. Massive anticlimax. Stevenage came for a point and got it by hook and crook. Um, I think it was a decent outcome for both, t- for both teams, to be honest. And I think the game kind of reflected that. It was one that more so than both teams wanted to win. Both teams wanted to not lose. I think it's fair to say that Carlisle United's blood pressure was somewhat raised by some of Steve Evans and Nidge's antics, which <laughs> is nothing new. But all of that, George, opened a door and Northampton Town have walked through it, beating Crew Alex 1-0. In the um, dubious assist panel, we've already covered uh, Cham, Sam Hoskins. What do you think? That's one of my favourite assists of the weekend. Y- yeah. is he? So you think he is trying to cross? Yes. Interesting. Even if he wasn't, I would stick up for him because yesterday in my Sunday league game, I took a shot, volley over my shoulder. I was picturing it going in the top corner. I hit it so far wide that it went straight to my teammate who tapped it in. So I got an assist. Did everyone run at you and be like, whoa, what an assist? Like they did for Hosky. <laughs> Sadly not. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> That even, was it, so good. What are you talking about? It was such a good cross on the volley. It was it was an aesthetically aesthetically very beautiful goal because of the assist from Hoskins and um, Apare, next season's top goal scorer in in league in league one or league two. France's next great hope at numero neuf. Apare, which league? Because you said he's going to score loads of goals next season. I wanted to know which league it was going to be in because you know they are possibly going to be a league one side next season, aren't they? Hey, so. yeah, that's interesting, right? So I've mentioned Aurel Nazmu's projections before. Mm-hmm. And uh, he works for 21st Group. Uh, we we share them on our Twitter account. I've mentioned them before. You should know what I'm talking about. Um, not you specifically, George. I know you I do, do but the listener. Um, Cobblers have moved into third with this win. Their chances of automatic promotion per Aurel's projections, 51%, but still 23 to 10 with the Betfair Sportsbook, which those of you who know your odds and your probabilities will know is um, a significantly lower probability than 51%. So nice little discrepancy there for Cobblers to get their teeth into. Um, Crew didn't have a shot until the 60th minute here. It was about as comfortable as a 1-0 win comes. Uh, and really what I'm hearing is that it would have been many more if not for the impressive shot stopping of Crew's young Brighton Loney between the sticks. Uh, James Beadle 
Beadle uh, is an England under-19 international. He's in the squad for the international break uh, and he's been absolutely brilliant. And they kind of needed him to be good after he replaced Okonkwo, who they had on loan from Arsenal, who's also pretty good in the first half of the season. So um, a 1-0 defeat for Crewe. Didn't really lay a glove on Northampton. Nice for them to have Courtney Baker-Richardson back, though. Uh, he was one of the best strikers in, in, in League Two, I maintain, before his injury. Um, he often has to do it all a bit on his own up front because crew aren't a team that create a lot for him. Um, but I think if he can get back and fit before the end of the season, uh, if he's still there next season, and I think that if he can stay fit, he'll be up there with Apere as one of the best strikers in the league. Um, <laughs> Looking forward to the next episode of Beatles About on Tuesday night at Gillingham. Lovely. Um, quietly, guess who's played three of the last five for Northampton? Started three of the last five for Northampton. A young French Irishman called William Hondemark. Ah, nice. <laughs> who has who joined in January, who's taken advantage of some midfield injuries, uh, and is just starting to flower, just as we knew that he would, just as we knew that he could, um, starting to show, well... A bit of something, something. So keep your eye out on Honda Mark. The so far the only player to have ever been sponsored by not the top twenty podcast. It may have not been a difficult win for Northampton. It was still a very significant one, uh, as discussed. Into third, uh, Salford were the only other team in the top half to win. George, they did so three-one at home to Doncaster. Yeah, and and did it well <clears throat> too. They were they were very good on the on the day. Doncaster again showing this just bizarre. Um, the, the range of their performances has to be the, the widest. Although Salford themselves have thrown in some, some clangers this season. Um, but Salford by far and away the better team here. Bolton with the first goal, assisted by Callum Hendry. Uh, and if, if Apare is your, um, the apple of your... Ah, oh, the apple of your eye. That pun in... would have been so much better if you hadn't celebrated it halfway through. I know, <laughs> I know. Uh, if he's the apple of your eye, then, then Callum Hendry is mine. Um, a, a, an ill-fated... Uh, bet on him to be top because goal scoring league two means I've followed his progress <laughs> closely and he is he's very good like he's someone who he gets a lot of shots off he is very much more than just a penalty box striker though as could be seen by that first one an unbelievably bad goalkeeping error um from Moore who hadn't played for about 15 years um for the second goal from Stevie Mallon just basically La- last Saturday Jonathan Mitchell was in goal let Wimbledon's shot squirm between his hands like an absolute howler then picked up a shoulder injury so they needed an emergency loan got more in and he's done basically the exact same thing within 20 minutes it's remarkable it's a curse they conceded that yeah Salford by far the better team there um in this you know if with Sutton dropping points recently with Barrow dropping points on Saturday um with Swindon dropping points as well that really congested area in um League Two is getting a little bit easier to see although there are still you know including Salford in that there are still too many teams to fit in but you do now think maybe it's going to be I mean Sutton's still very much there in terms of points picked up um, but with teams around them with with games in hand maybe it's going to be between Mansfield, Salford, Bradford um, and Stockport as to three of those to get into the playoffs and one missing Yeah I took my keep an eye on Sutton thing too seriously last Tuesday I went to Sutton Grimsby and they lost 1-0 I feel like I've ruined it. It's a bit of a shame. Uh, outside the top half, Walsall beat Gillingham 2-0. They won. Walsall won a football match after 13 league games without doing so. It's their first win since New Year's Day. A thirsty home crowd at the Bescott Stadium enjoyed that one. Uh, and if it was Mother's Day on Sunday, 
It was Sun's day on Saturday, George. Hutchinson and Wilkinson with the goals. So Mr. Hutchin yeah. and Mr. Wilkin can be very proud of their boys. Um, good win for them. Tramier won Newport 3. I sort of want to give credit for Newport, but they're not the story. Uh, I'm going to call their performance the away performance of the week. 3-1 win at Tramier, albeit quite an easy win, uh, given the level of performance and, dare I say it, motivation from their opposition. Tramier losing uh, a game, another game here, and it led to the end of Mickey Mellon. It's the end of his second spell at Tranmere, George. And this one, I'm afraid, in romantic terms, is it's the couple that break up. It's the couple that get back together. But things just are not the same as before. Both of them, if anything, tarnished somewhat by the past and by the time spent apart. Uh, it's been just quite a poor, quite an underwhelming, quite a boring spell, really. Uh, under Mickey Mellon this second spell and it ends now and I'm interested to know where they turn next because I'll be honest I don't really have a great grasp of what Tranmere Rovers' budget would be they are notably very prudent owners and in good times I think that's something that has been praised that they that they do look after the club financially even though maybe they may not have the deepest pockets themselves. I think you could certainly criticise them for having made some poor appointments. The list of Tranmere managers over the last five or six years uh, is pretty underwhelming. I can certainly get behind that as criticism for them. But purely on attendances, like as a proxy for a team's financial capability, and that's obviously flawed, but it's something to go off. Tranmere sort of in the sixth to tenth bracket in League Two. And I think that's basically where I think they should be. But they've been far beneath that, really. They've been performing far beneath that for a while. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm a little concerned about them because I don't think they've got a very good team. And therefore, I think if they get the managerial appointment wrong, however that looks, and if they don't have a strong summer of recruitment, if they're a little complacent on that front, I'd be a bit concerned about Tramir. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, this season's obviously been very disappointing in every aspect really they've been just kind of a, a bit of a nothing um a nothing side they've had aspirations to finish in the top seven you know they've kind of shown signs of life at, at different parts of the season but not really and i agree i don't, I don't really have a, a very good um handle on them as a football club at the moment um james vaughan was formerly sporting director and that seemed to be you know having initially basically having initially thought that Phil Falk, not jobs for the boys, but a bit of a weird appointment. I, I know I spoke to people who who knew him or have worked with him and, and they were all pretty united with the idea that it was a he was, he was a, a good appointment and someone um, who would oversee um, stability at the club and be fairly innovative with it. But he moved on in September um, to, to a role at Everton there was nothing in the statement when he left to suggest that he was going to be replaced. And I don't think he's been replaced from what I can tell. So you've got a sporting director who left, um, who hasn't been replaced, and then a manager, Mickey Mellon. And remember left. as well that their summer recruitment had us quite confused because they they reduced the average age of the squad from being one of the oldest at the level, which felt like a stance, basically, to being one of the youngest at the level, which didn't strike us at the time as being something that Mickey Mellon would have been obviously pro. Therefore, you'd assume that James Vaughan, as sporting director, was mostly in charge of. And then he 
sacked him off for, for to become Everton's loan manager in um in September. So all a bit weird on that front. Yeah, yeah, all very weird. I, I can't really work it out. Um, but um, you know, there's one manager who um I know fairly well, <laughs> who's fairly local to the area, who you know a, a lack of infrastructure around recruitment and the rest of it wouldn't really bother him. Um, I, I I wonder if Carl Robinson will be linked to the to the job. Um, somebody who's you know obviously had big success um, at MK Dons, who took Oxford very close to a promotion. Whether he wants to go to League Two, I'm not entirely sure. There must be part of the, the geography of the the uh, the club might might appeal. Although maybe he wants to stay around the you know the that kind of area. Um, Northwest of of London, um, with MK and 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 Oxford both being based there. I'm not entirely sure, but he'll be a, a name that I'm sure will be linked. Um, Danny Cowley being linked as well. No surprise there. I think maybe the best place for the Cowleys to be in terms of their next job is a an aspirational League Two side with with promotion ambitions. It feels like a, a good place for them to be. Um, but as you say, you know, an owner who is incredibly well respected. I, I don't really have a handle on, on what they're looking for or, or where they are right now, um, especially as I say with the. I think when when you lose a sporting director, you only hire the year before, and then you don't do anything to replace them. That is a a red flag to hmm. me. Hmm. Uh, Wimbledon nil, Crawley won. George very timely back to back wins for Crawley, who went one 0 up pretty early here. Uh, it was Tilly running in behind, squaring it for Nadison to tap home, and were surprisingly comfortable from that point, which. I believe doesn't reflect very well on AFC Wimbledon, who've been pretty bleak recently in their performances and their results. Didn't register a single shot on target here, having registered only one in their last game. And not great on that front, but going back to Crawley, massively significant week that they've had moving away from the relegation zone, or I say away from it, above it just. Yeah, huge. And they've got a massive game in midweek um, where if they can find a way... Uh, it's a home game against Doncaster, who we know are not in particularly good form. If they can find a way to win that, then it would have been an incredible job from Scott Lindsay. Um, maybe because they weren't detached at the bottom of League of League Two, it'll go unnoticed just how big an achievement I think it would be if Lindsay were to keep them up. Um, you know, we, we know that there are good players there, but that club was was, was down on its knees uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So, um, yeah, I mean, a, a big win for them. If, definitely feels they've taken a step forward they look way more dangerous uh going forward as, as we said from kind of the, from when he came in but he seems to have tightened them up defensively as well so yeah a big a big win for them and you know, disappointing for for Jacko and, and, and AFC Wimbledon that they they're another side who to me like Cambridge they seem to at the moment be you know when they play poorly like they do on Saturday they don't get anything when they put in decent performances they don't really get much to show for it either my main thing with Wimbledon is every time I sort of take my eye off things for a month or so and then I look at their lineup and I look at the way that they're playing it looks like they've moved into a different iteration like they've moved into a different version of themselves like I was there on opening day against Gillingham and they were playing three at the back the most extreme possession based build up style I think I've ever seen in League 2 um, then there was a sort of second iteration of them I can't quite remember what that looked like the third iteration was Harry Pell at number 10 um, much more like structured and direct and just a little bit more old school in their approach with a lot of the older players playing uh, and now this it just looks different time and time again and I believe that a lot of that is down to injuries and departures I think 
Asal leaving in January and Riley Towler as well, who had established himself uh, as a really important player for them in their one really good spell of the season. Both leaving wouldn't have helped very much, but the recruitment in January outside of Ali Al-Hamadi has been okay, not amazing. The recruitment in the summer was not amazing. Uh, and it's. I think the fans are really struggling to see the potential. And I do think they're a very fair fan base who are happy to believe in potential if there's something to go off. Uh, I don't think that they've seen a huge amount this season to suggest that next season they would, for whatever reason, just fly back up the table and challenge, which is where they, they want to be and probably on the budget where they, they should be. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the next month is quite important, even without much to play for, quite important for Johnny Jackson and for the team. As for Crawley, I think just looking at the, the way that they played here in the system, it was a 4-4-2, basically. Nadison and Telford up front, direct wingers out wide. Um, early in the season, it felt like they were choosing tactics that weren't in line with the players that they had. You know, George, they, they were so explicit about high-pressing, possession style, trying to play like top-level football in League Two. And if you can get it right, then I do believe that's a great way of playing in League Two. But from the start of the season, it was clear that it wasn't working. Now it finally feels like they've gone the other way and they've just gone, who are our best players? How can we make that work? Dom Telford, better in a two. We saw that in Newport last season. We're seeing that now. Nadison, don't stick him out wide. Put him up top with Telford and watch them combine. That's what they're doing now. And I think it has to be the best choice short term. I, d I do believe that having a proposed style of play and building towards that is an okay way to approach things short term in terms of staying up this is the way to go for Crawley for sure uh, Harrogate won one nil against Barrow they were the other sort of winners down the bottom um, the only two teams in the bottom six to win were Crawley and Harrogate uh, it was a uh, yeah they probably edged the game daily strike too powerful for Farman um, and they got the one all the one nil win sorry uh, how about Rochdale four Swindon four I think we're making an excuse for this draw won't we um, Charlie Austin scoring all four of Swindon's goals it's the first time he's ever scored four in his career and they didn't win. Uh, Ethan Briley for Rochdale with two assists. The first one in particular was very, very nice ball over the top, showing that vision and passing range that um, we believe him to have in spades as a young player. Swindon conceding an injury time goal from a corner for the second straight game. Uh, Carlisle and now this one. And even at 4 all, George Dale had two big chances. Hit the post with one and then one of the defenders at the back post putting it over the bar right at the end. Jody Morris was pretty scathing of his team post-match. He was not impressed with what he saw. Um, El Arbitro summed it up pretty nicely. Hugh Davis on NTT20 squad saying, must be quite a tough day to support Rochdale. You get put through the ringer, but snatch a last gasp draw. Not the win that was needed, but still a point against a playoff chasing side. Only to find out that Crawley won away, that Hartlepool got a point away at Bradford. And now they're in an even worse position than they were before the weekend. It's the fourth time per El Arbitro. The Rochdale have scored more than two goals in a game. And they haven't won a single one of them. Uh, three games in League Two where they've scored three or more and they haven't won any of those games. Uh, Bradford 2, Hartlepool 2, Callum Cook and Andy Cook. Uh, Callum Cook scoring for Hartlepool against his old club. No hint of a muted celebration there. Indeed, pointing to the shirt, to <laughs> pointing to the name on the back of his shirt to remind the Bradford fans what they're missing. But Andy Cook, George, I mean, this is a striker in some nick, isn't it? Playing unbelievably well. And, you know, he's basically the reason why Bradford are <clears throat> still in the position that they're in. Um, he's a you know, starting to now see a few Bradford fans 
questioning Mark Hughes and the management um, there. I think when your when your home form is as poor as, as theirs is, and when you consistently struggle to put teams away who you should have no trouble doing so, then that is inevitable. Um, but there's no you know Cook is is essential to what they're doing, um, and you know if they are to to somehow manage to to fight their way um, up through the playoffs you think it would have to be then you can see him playing a massive part you know he's now clear isn't he at the top of the, the league two goal scoring charts the second goal was a volley um, you know it's so easy to say but I think whenever a player that Mark Hughes manages scores a good volley you're always going to compare it to the manager um, but you know he, he's what I like about him is he's a goal scorer who scores basically all types of goals around there you know he's he's good for, good in the air for a guy who isn't that big he's got quality um yeah, I'm a big fan. He's scoring quality goals, and I think you could say the same about Dan Kemp of Hartlepool. He's got six goals in nine with an assist as well. If Hartlepool are going to go down, I would still feel pretty bad for Dan Kemp because he's doing his best. They've drawn four in a row now, Pools, and they're, they're certainly not rolling over, but maybe they just lack the quality as a team. Uh, certainly with Kemp and Cook, they do have quality players, Umera as well, but just never quite worked for them as a team consistently this season. Last but not least, George, Stockport won, Mansfield won. That was a very, very significant goal scored by Mr. Versatile, Lucas Aikens, thumping header in injury time to snatch a point for Mansfield, cancelling out another EFL goal-scoring veteran, Paddy Madden's opener, uh, another good-headed goal. Really significant in the context of the League 2 promotion picture and Stags suffering big time with injuries at the moment, but grinding, staying in with a shout. You wonder if they might finish the season strong uh, and punch their way into the playoffs once again. Uh, and that is the week that was in the EFL. A fun one. Uh, we'll be back again on Thursday with a betting show ahead of the uh, international break League One and League Two weekend. Please, please type ntt20.substack.com into your browser and stick your email address in. It'll take you five seconds and we promise it will be worth it. It will be the most hands-free approach ever to getting really good, in-depth, detailed and regular EFL content straight into your inbox, ntt20.substack.com. We will not let you down, so please give us a shot. Go out.